You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed, Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Amen? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we ask that you would be present among us powerfully, that you would speak to us, that you would open our hearts and our minds and our ears to hear from you. God, that you would open our eyes that we might see the beauty of the gospel, crucified, risen, and returning Jesus. Father, that you would um, come in these moments and and, um, drill the message of the gospel deep down inside the recesses of our hearts. Father, we see here how you 
definitely advanced the gospel um, outside of Jerusalem to this region of Samaria. And God, we, we just ask that you would, in a way, advance the gospel to places of our hearts where uh, maybe we have been uh, cold towards you or rebellious towards you. So Father, we ask that you would do that and then some, and we trust you to do that. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So this uh, passage uh, immediately follows uh, the execution of the church's first martyr, a man named Stephen. Right? And that's what happened in the previous verses that we studied last week. And in these verses here, what Luke does is he simply records how the church um, gets scattered by persecution. Um, he records how Philip, uh, one of the uh, previous deacons that were installed before um, Stephen's uh, martyrdom, uh, he records how, how Philip then proclaims the gospel in Samaria. Uh, he also tells us this story about Simon, uh, the magician, how he tries to buy the Spirit's power. And then he kind of wraps it all up in a neat, tight little bow at the very end of verse 25, where he, he describes to us how the apostles continue preaching the gospel throughout Samaria, despite all of those things uh, that have just happened. What is happening here, literally, is the gospel is being scattered. Okay? That, that's, I think, the thing that we need to kind of latch on to. It's being scattered. It's being advanced outside the walls of Jerusalem, right? If you think of Jerusalem like your own backyard, your hometown, your neighborhood, maybe the place that you feel the most comfortable, um, what God is doing is he's, he's advancing the gospel outside that area. Um, the seeds of the gospel uh, have, have already literally been sown throughout the backyard of Jerusalem. And what God is doing is he's saying, hey, now it's time. It's time for the fields in the, in the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria to get planted with those very same gospel seedlings. Uh, when you think about the area of Judea and Samaria in the Bible versus the area of Jerusalem... If Jerusalem is like our hometown, the place that we maybe feel the most comfortable, uh, Judea and Samaria represents an area that most of us don't want to go to. So you might keep that in mind. Judea and Samaria most likely would not make it on the list of vacation destinations uh, for the Jews. So I don't know what that area is like for you. So uh, easy illustration in the moment. If you're a Republican, then a Democrat-run city is not a place you want to go. Or we'll say the opposite. Okay, If you're a Democrat, then a Republican-run city is probably not the place you want to go for a vacation. That might be one way of saying it. Uh, there are probably other areas that seem really difficult for you to even think about going to. Maybe it's a family member's house. Uh, maybe, it's a, um, maybe it's a certain shopping center um, because of the stance that that shopping center takes. Um, there are places that make us very uncomfortable that do not make it at the top of our list. There are certain steakhouses that I don't go to because they don't make steak right. I don't know that it applies, but um, you get the point, right? Uh, to go to Judea and Samaria, to have that at the top of the missionary list, that this is where we're going to send our missionaries, um, it probably wouldn't have happened um, in, in this scenario. And yet, this is exactly what happens. I think it can be kind of difficult for us sometimes to appreciate 
uh, the sovereignty of God in the way that he lays out his plans of advancing uh, the message of the gospel. You think about this, somebody had to come to wherever you were at at some point and share the gospel with you. Uh, Maybe multiple times. Uh, I remember in uh, my younger years as I was running hard against the Lord in rebellion, my dad would constantly come and rescue me um, from the side of the road, almost literally, um, drunk in a ditch or next to a curb. Um, And those were not places that I'm sure that my dad really wanted to go in the middle of the night, but that's where he would go. Why? Because he was not only um, trying to love his son, but because he was passionate about seeing the gospel advanced in someone's life. Now, you don't have to be in some of the same places that I was to have the Lord sovereignly work his plan of redemption in your life to send someone to reach you. The point of this is, is that wherever you were and whoever it was that came to share the gospel with you, you might remember that it may not have been the very first priority on their list to come find you where you were at. That's what's taking place in this text. Again, I think it would be kind of difficult for us sometimes to appreciate the sovereign plan of God in advancing the message of the gospel. Why? Because oftentimes we are very inundated with strategic plans, uh, fundraising schemes, targeting specific people groups in certain countries or regions. you got missionary organizations, best practices. you got truckloads of books. I have some in the basement in my office. Truckloads of books explaining how to do missionary work. None of those things are bad. None of those things are wrong. They are good tools. We ought to use them for sure. But God's plan for spreading the seeds of the gospel as you study the Bible, as you study the book of Acts in particular, is his plan for spreading the seeds of the gospel to the ends of the earth. It rarely fits within the confines of our neat and tidy little spreadsheets. I, for one, love spreadsheets. Anybody with me? Love spreadsheets? There's three of us. We're the geeks. God's plans don't typically fit within our plans. Plans are higher than our plans. There are typically more, I think, than a few unforeseen curveballs and surprising hairpin turns um, that you have to navigate as you commit yourself to obeying the Great Commission to pursue the lost with the gospel. Meaning that you, you commit yourself to that cause. You commit yourself to the Great Commission, and what happens is as you pursue God in obedience, you will definitely run into far more barriers than you ever thought you would run into. Now, you may remember, if you have read the book of Acts, or if you've been with us in this study, you may remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And I don't have it on the screen, but uh, um, if you've got your Bible in front of you, make a note and look at it. But in, in Acts 1, 8, Jesus tells his disciples that once they receive the Holy Spirit, they're going to become... His witnesses in all Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, if you, if you study the book of Acts as we're doing now, you'll find that there are three basic parts to the book. Um, there's ministry in Jerusalem that lasts all the way up through the end of chapter 7. Then there's ministry in Judea and Samaria that goes uh, until like 17, 18, 19, I think, somewhere in there. Uh, and then the rest of the book is all about ministry to the 
outer regions of the known earth, the ends of the earth, so to speak. So it's, it's fascinating that God says this, that Jesus says this in the beginning. This is the way it's going to go when you get saved, when you, uh, when you receive the Holy Spirit, then, and you commit to being my witnesses, you're going to share the gospel. You're going to be my agent of sharing the gospel in your own backyard, and also in areas where it's very uncomfortable, and then also in unknown areas where you never even thought about going to the ends of the earth. And then he goes so far as to write this book through Luke, and it's actually broken up in those three ways. I can imagine when the disciples heard Jesus say this in Acts 1.8, I can imagine, I'm sure you can too, if you were standing there on that day, you just witnessed his brutal murder, you just witnessed his empty tomb, his resurrection, you've been spending time with Jesus for roughly 40 days or so, somewhere in there, right? And, and you're excited he's back. You think that Jesus is going to go topple the occupying uh, political force in your country. You think he's going to turn everything around. What do you think? He's going to be that kind of a king. And you find out that, no, that's not the kind of king he's going to be at this time. He's actually going to ascend to heaven. And if he ascends to heaven, then that means he's going to give you his spirit to fulfill his promise to be with you wherever you go as you be his witnesses. So in those moments in the beginning of Acts, when Jesus says this to his disciples, I'm pretty certain they were a bit shocked. I don't think they ever foresaw the way in which the Holy Spirit was going to make his mission blueprint happen. Instead of using human ingenuity, what God does instead is he uses things like human suffering. He uses enemy opposition. He uses violent persecution to advance the gospel into the regions beyond the walls. These are things that are hard, I think, for us to comprehend and apply because we live in a free country. We, we have not yet necessarily experienced what other countries have experienced even from the time of the book of Acts. And yet, all throughout church history, the church has experienced this kind of gospel advancement, not in the way we would want to or think we would, but more so in the way that God chooses, through suffering, enemy opposition, persecution. And that's the first thing you see, right? If you look at verses 1 through 3, you see how the church is scattered by persecution. Uh, in these verses, Luke tells us that immediately following Stephen's murder at the hands of an angry religious mob, while the church is still mourning Stephen's murder, this man named Saul, who approved of Stephen's execution, the text tells us he began ravaging. The word ravage is, is a word that means destroy, violently destroy. That's what Saul begins to do. He begins to violently attempt to destroy the church. And he does this by persecuting them heavily. And as a result, the text tells us that all of the believers in that day were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles who actually remained in Jerusalem. Now, there's lots of uh, uh, hypothesis as to why the apostles stayed in Jerusalem uh, you can read scores of books as to why, <laughs> as well as how they were able to do so without uh, being caught and murdered. Um, but for our study today, it's just best for us to know that that's where they were. 
Those 12 original apostles were able to stay there in Jerusalem while everybody else was scattered. Now, I think what Luke wants us to see here, the significance of what he's showing us and describing, is he wants us to understand that the gospel is now spreading beyond the walls of Jerusalem. And it's, it's happening not because of, like I said, human ingenuity or some well-laid missionary plans, but on the contrary, what's happening here is the gospel is advancing because of some terrifying persecution at the hands of a man named Saul. Now this man named Saul, if you've never read the Bible, don't know his story. This man named Saul, in the very next chapter of the book of Acts, he's going to become the object, not of God's wrath, as I think many would wish, uh, but he's actually going to become the object of God's love and God's sovereign plan of redemption uh, through this worldwide spread of the seeds of the gospel. The bottom line is that in the very next chapter, Saul, the one who is terrorizing and ravaging the church and attempting to stop the advancement of the gospel, that very man is going to be the very man who is being used by Satan, right, at first, to execute the church's first martyr. That's going to be the man that God saves, and then turns around and uses for his own plan of worldwide evangelism. It's a fascinating story when you think about it. <coughs> I think the best illustration I've heard over the years is you take, uh, you take an Osama bin Laden and you turn him into a worldwide evangelist. That's what took place here with Saul. That's what's going to happen in the next chapter. He's going to tell us how Saul the terrorist literally is going to become Paul the evangelist. And what Luke wants us to see is he wants us to see what it actually looks like when the gospel invades the darkness, the unreached regions of Judea and Samaria. The second thing we see when you look at verses 4 through 8, you see Philip proclaiming the gospel in Samaria. Now again, Samaria is not a place that the Jews would have just naturally wanted to go to. If you go back to the Gospels and you read the story of Jesus reaching the Samaritan woman at the well, which is the name of our church, right, the well, um, when you see Jesus going there, he kind of gets rebuked for it. Number one, he's sitting with a prostitute woman, middle of the day, alone, at a well, and he's talking to her, right? And she even recognizes, hey, men of your stature do not come here and talk to me in the broad of daylight, let alone midday, or alone for that matter. Um, the Jews had a practice when it came to Samaria. Um, I don't know if there's a place for you that's kind of like this, but they had a practice that when they had to go through Samaria to go somewhere, they would take off their sandals on the other side and they would shake the dust off their feet, put their sandal back on and leave. Because Samaria was that detestable of a place for them to go. There's a lot of history behind that that we don't have time to go into, but the reason for it simply to say is that Samaritans were basically half Jew and half something else. So you could say they were half-breeds, right? It would be a term that, it's a, it's a rough term to use, but that's the way they were seen. Um, and then religiously even, in their religious customs, they did not practice exactly the same way as the Jews did, right? The Jews had their traditions and they worshipped here, and the Samaritans had their traditions and they kind of worshipped here. They definitely worshipped the same God, for sure. But their traditions were different. Kind of like the difference between the Lutherans and the Catholics, or the Baptists and the non-denominational people. 
for the Pentecostal. But the differences, right? And the heaven forbid if any self-respecting Jew, holy, righteous man, would ever walk through the Samaritan area. That's how detestable it was between the two groups. Uh, the, 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 the infighting between them was, uh, was horrifying. So here in these verses, in verse, uh, in verse 4 especially, Luke tells us that even though the church was scattered because of persecution, the gospel could not be contained. It could not be hindered. Uh, he says that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And so the point here is that, that people who have met the crucified, risen, and returning Christ, like Philip, these kinds of people don't shut up, they don't put up, they don't give up on preaching the word. They preach the gospel everywhere they go to everyone they meet, despite the circumstances that they find themselves in. In the end, what I think Luke wants us to see is that you cannot keep a spirit-filled person down. You just cannot. And you certainly cannot constrain them by boundaries, whether it be racial, ethnic, so on and so forth, social, economic, any of those. Those boundaries do not matter when it comes to the gospel. This is why Luke tells us in verses 5-8 through eight that when Philip scattered to Samaria, in that area he proclaimed Jesus to everyone he met. Uh, and he preached to the crowds, and, and it says that they listened to him. Why? Because his preaching was confirmed by powerful signs as people were being delivered. They were being delivered powerfully from demonic possession. The lame were being healed. Those who were paralyzed began to walk, resulting in great joy throughout the city. And I think that's something really important for us to uh, hone in on for a moment. Because of the miraculous works that were being done, because people were being saved, people were being set free, there was freedom in this place. The whole place was full of joy. I just want to ask you, what is it that you have allowed to steal your joy recently? And could I propose that all of the reasons that you might give for something stealing your joy might actually find its roots in a lack of the advancement of the gospel in your own heart? Because in this place... Where, where the gospel advanced beyond any boundaries that anybody could try to put on it, the result was pure, unadulterated joy, despite circumstances. Now, I've never met anyone who was genuinely set free by the message of the gospel, who didn't share the gospel with others. I've never met anyone who was genuinely set free by the gospel, saved a Christian, a Christ follower. Never met anyone who was genuinely that kind of person who was not also filled with great joy despite the circumstances around That's the thing that sets believers apart from unbelievers, is the ability to hang on to joy because of salvation and because of the message of the gospel. Anyone who has experienced the kind of freedom that comes from believing the gospel, that kind of person is not only filled with supernatural joy, but is also a ferocious evangelist at the same time. I want you to hear me clearly. What I'm not saying is I'm not saying that we as believers oftentimes struggle 
with cleaning and joy. What I am saying is that when we know what joy is, true joy that comes from the experience of being set free by the gospel, that in those moments when our joy is at risk, what do we do? I think by the Spirit's leading at some point, and probably at times with the help of a church family around us, we press back into that part of the gospel that we are failing to believe in those moments so that our joy might return. Restore, restore to me the joy of my salvation. A prayer that I have often prayed. So when Jesus walked this earth, um, you might remember in Luke chapter 4 where he said that he had come to proclaim the good news, right? Um, only people that sit and scowl when the good news is preached are people that are unregenerated, I think. You know what I mean? The people that are um, people that have no lot or place, I guess, in the kingdom of God at that time would be those who would sit and scowl when the good news is preached. And you'd see this in Jesus' ministry. There were some who would wholeheartedly and joyfully receive him and his word as he preached the good news. And that's what he said he came to do. This was his mission, to seek and to save those who are lost. And in Luke 4, he kind of spells it out. He says, this is what that looks like. I'm going to proclaim the good news. I'm going to proclaim liberty, which means freedom. Oftentimes, I think our problem is we don't really see the fact that we are in bondage to our sin. We're stuck there, right? We're in a jail cell, and actually the door is unlocked because Jesus unlocked it. We find ourselves stuck there. Jesus came to proclaim freedom, liberty to the captives. He says, recovering of sight to the blind. Those who are blind to the gospel, blind to the spiritual truth of the cross and the empty tomb and the... The, the promise of eternity in heaven. Jesus would say, I came to preach just that, to proclaim that to everyone, recovering your sight to the blind, to set at liberty or to set free, he says, those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which means grace or unearned merit. When, when someone meets Jesus, as we're seeing take place here with Philip in Samaria, and you've got to figure, too, like the Samaritans at that point um, had probably lost some hope, so to speak, of ever experiencing any kind of reconciliation or restoration between the two groups. And yet, here this man, Philip, gets scattered there. And the first thing he does when he comes there is he, he preaches the gospel. And when someone meets Jesus through the preaching of that gospel, the result is simply great joy and more gospel proclamation. When the Spirit moves authentically, what we see taking place here is that people are attracted to Jesus. But at the same time, uh, there are some people who are only attracted because they, they like to be entertained. Anybody like to be entertained here? It's not a bad thing to like to be entertained. I like to be entertained, okay? Um, Give me a good motorcycle race, and I'm entertained. Do a string of old westerns on TV, and I'm entertained. There's nothing wrong with this. But in this case, while there are some who are attracted to Jesus, there are also some who are only attracted because they like to be entertained. Or you could say, worse yet, uh, they like to possess the power to entertain others. 
third thing we see, Simon the magician tries to buy the Spirit's power. Now, I'm sure we already know this is a really stupid maneuver, isn't it? This is really dumb. Um, for a magician, he definitely was a fool. Agreed? Look at verses 9 through 11. Luke tells us that there was this entertainer in Samaria. His name is Simon. Loved to get the attention of the crowds. Had a circus act for sure. Crowds were so enamored with him that they said, This man is the power of God that is called great. That's what the text tells us. Um, Papa Joe's interpretation of that, I guess you could say. Um, Simon enjoyed the attention he got from the crowds. Why? Because it made him feel like he was God in the flesh. Scary, isn't it? Think about that. I can't think of a more dangerous place to be than in Simon's shoes. Should be a strong warning to all of us, especially to any of us who desires the lights of the stage. Especially preachers, right? Such as myself, or teachers. Anybody who, who wishes to be in, in leadership where the lights are on you should be a strong warning to us. Those who lead worship should be a strong warning to us. The reason is this, the desire for attention and the desire for adoration, the desire for love from all of those who are looking back at you as you entertain, that desire is powerful and it's strong. And it's led many to destruction. The same kind of destruction that Simon is headed towards in this text. You look at verses 12 to 13, it seems as though Simon is actually counted among those who believed Philip's preaching. The thing that is missing from the text, I think, in regards to Philip is, though it says that he believed, it's not the same Greek language as one who actually um, received Christ by faith. To receive Christ by faith is to both believe and trust. Those are the two arms of faith. It's to believe and to trust. So I could say, and the most common illustration is, I could say that I believe that that chair will hold me all day long. But if you never see me sit in that chair, you might begin to wonder if I actually trust that chair can hold me. So at some point, you would begin to question my faith. So yeah, you believe, but you don't trust. And I think that's partially what's missing here with Simon. It's missing from the text, um, but it's also missing from the fruit of his life, as we see in the rest of the story, right? Because it seems as though Simon is counted among those who believe Philip's preaching. Uh, the text tells us, Luke tells us that he was amazed by the miracles that accompanied the message of the gospel. And so what did he do? He made a public profession of faith. Do you know how many people uh, throughout the world, and especially in the Western world, find it popular to make a profession of faith, but then never have the fruit that backs it up? Now, this is popular. He made a profession of faith. He sealed it with his public baptism. So we've always said, too, baptism doesn't save you. Um, baptism may be and should be an outward profession confession of what's going on inside. So he sealed it with his public uh, baptism. And you think about this and you look at this, you've got to remember that um, everything that sparkles is not gold. Agreed? Everything that sparkles is not a diamond either. 
Right? And just because someone makes a public declaration of their faith in Christ does not mean that they have truly experienced genuine conversion. And here's what I would say. Uh, even as you look at the text, the only thing that is needed to prove that true, what I just said, um, the only thing that's needed is an authentic demonstration of the Spirit's power to see who truly belongs to the Spirit. You could also say the only thing that needs to happen is some suffering, some persecution, see who falls away. But in this case, all you need is an authentic demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit to see who actually belongs to him. And that's the point, I think, of what happens in verses 14 through 17. If you look at those verses, you'll see that when the apostles leave Jerusalem now, and they come and they visit Samaria because they had received word of this spirit-led revival that was happening there. And upon their arrival, the apostles realized that the new believers in Samaria, they had not yet received the Holy Spirit in full measure. And so what do they do? They begin praying for people to receive the Holy Spirit, uh, who was more than happy to oblige them. His outpouring of full confirmation, right? His desire, his ability to save and to empower even those who were viewed as outcasts in that world. Jesus loves to save outcasts. He does. Every one of us. I don't care how great your background was, how spiffy you look in the mirror, or what your worst sins are that you don't tell anybody about. Jesus loves to save outcasts, and he's doing that right here in the text, and it's absolutely beautiful. Especially when in doing so, he actually reveals who the real imposters are. Like, that's what happens in verses 18 through 24, right? Simon is amazed, or you could say another easy word that connects to it, he's amazed. He was what? He was entertained. The entertainer is now being entertained. And he's being entertained by the power that's being manifested when the apostles laid their hands on people to receive the Holy Spirit. And so Luke tells us that Simon was so amazed, he was, he was so entertained by this, that he actually offered money to the apostles to get some of this power. Most likely, I think, that he did this because he thought his financial investment would reap momentary benefits of more attention in the limelight as Simon the Great. Of course, we know that by the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter sniffs this out immediately. Right? Didn't pass the sniff test at all. Sniffs him out immediately. He rebukes him. He calls him to repent. Calls him to seek forgiveness for his wickedness. And you know what Simon's only response was? His response is so telling. And it's easy to read right by it. Because I think some of us would do the same thing. Hey, yo, would you, man, thank you for rebuking me. Would you please pray for me? Like, that's what it seems like. It's not exactly what's taking place in Simon's response. His response is actually a very lame response that actually further proves that Simon did not have authentic faith. He did not both believe and trust. He didn't even want to know Jesus. Because instead of repenting, which is a step number one of getting to know Jesus and continuing in repentance, because it's not a destination, it's a continuous journey. Instead of doing any of that, he asked Peter to pray for him. But look at what he asked Peter to pray for him for in verse 24. 
He says, please pray for me so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. There's no authentic or genuine recognition of his sin. His response is not, oh my gosh, Peter, you're right. I was wrong. I'm a wicked person. I need Jesus to, would you help me to pray that Jesus would forgive me? It's not that. That's not the prayer he's asking to pray. Simon was not concerned with his wickedness. I think that Simon loved putting on a show. He loved putting on a show while pretending to be concerned. And the reality is that Simon's only concern, I think, was his opportunity to get the attention and the love that he so greatly desired from the crowds because he loved to entertain them and receive their attention in return. Now, it's interesting if you do study on church history. Most of you know I just walked out of like 16 weeks of church history study, so for me this is fresh. So infamous is this story of Simon throughout church history that there are two acts uh, throughout church history um, that really rose to the surface quite a bit. And one of them most of you probably know of called the sale of indulgences, right? I'm going to sell you some indulgence. You're going to give me some money that I can then use to fund our church uh, ideas. And the indulgence I give you is going to is going to you know, guarantee that you or your loved ones are going to have a place in heaven. That's the sale of indulgences. This is what sparked the Reformation. One of the main things that sparked it, Luther was like, nope, not, not doing that anymore. That's wrong, not biblical. Right? That's why he nailed his 95 Thesis to the Wittenberg Catholic Church. That's one. But one uh, that came out of that um, and, and that was closely tied to it is actually something called simony, after the word Simon. Could say simony, but it's simony is the way that it's uh, pronounced. The act of simony is something that had so totally infected churches uh, throughout church history from this point forward. And, uh, and what it is, what the act is, is it's literally trying to purchase spiritual authority so that you could then at that point control things. You could control churches, you could control entire cultures, you can, you can control the government and politics. There was a time in church history where the Pope himself was said to be more powerful than the government itself. And that spiritual leader had bought most of that power, and on top of that, then turned around and misused it while pointing to the scriptures as the okay and justification for doing so. Y'all know that I get pretty passionate at times about how closely the church and the state and politics get intertwined. And there is very good and very healthy ways that we can do that. Let me say that. Um, I am as, as, as American as they come, I think. So, um, but part of what causes me concern is when I see that in church history, and I know, know that it can be very easy to get that twist. And that's what happens here. And it comes out of this story of Simon called Simony. My hope, my prayer for us is that this would... Never become the fate of any of us. Uh, that we would embody what it actually looks like to engage in what, what I would call self-sacrificing, gospel-proclaiming ministry wherever we go. Um, you know, for, from, from the front yard where you see your guys picking up your trash, um, the guys that deliver your mail to the, the close friends you have, to the gas station attendant, to the checkout lady at Walmart, whatever it may be. My hope is that all of us would see these as circles and areas where we might share the gospel in the Spirit's power 
and not try to rely on like some special training, although special training and reading a truckload of books is really, really good. Uh, my hope is that we would not be known as people who would become manipulative in, in, in trying to share the gospel in our community and that we would be a part of advancing the gospel throughout the world as the Spirit enables us to do so. Um, and this is exactly where the end of the text takes us, right? Like the whole point of the text, again, it's the advancement of the gospel. Over and over and over again, we've heard about how the gospel is being proclaimed, the Bible's being preached, the word is being preached, the, the, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Jesus is being proclaimed. Those, that type of language is all over the text we're reading. It's the main thrust, and it's exactly the way Luke ends the story. It tells us in verse 25 that when the apostles had testified already and spoken the word of the Lord in the city where Philip was ministering, what did they do? Took a nap. No, that's not what they did. Well, they probably did. They just didn't put it in there. But they didn't go off on a spiritual retreat. Um, they didn't hang up their hat and say, I'm retiring now. Got my job, missionary work done in Samaria. Headed back home in Jerusalem to hide out so that the bad guys don't get me. Didn't go that way. Okay. All of these guys died horribly. We all know that. It says that they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Again, what Luke wants us to see is that despite the persecution, despite being scattered to the region where no self-respecting Jew would actually willingly travel to, despite the fact that there was at least one false convert, if not probably many others, the advancement of the gospel could not be stopped. God's plan to advance the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the known earth, that was unfolding. And they're just part of it. Like God's followers are just hanging on for the ride. Not necessarily going with the flow, but just going wherever he took them. Which is a great analogy because we know the Holy Spirit is like a breath of wind who blows wind into our sails that we might get after the obedient life that he's called us to as he also infills us with his power and becomes like the motor that moves the ship forward, right? It's exactly what we see taking place here in this text. Now, in conclusion, I'll conclude this hopefully in a way that would um, be helpful to you. Um, after we've looked at the text and tried to dive deeply into what it says, um, like we've seen how God used evil men, right? We've seen how God used horrifying persecution. We've seen how God used scattering believers. We've seen how God has used even false conversions um, to advance the gospel into the unreached territories of Judea and Samaria, just as Jesus had foretold. That's, if you could wrap all this up in one sentence, a run-on sentence, but that's what we just saw take place. That's the meaning of the text. Now, I would admit, when, when I first studied this, right, I, my, my initial reaction when I think about things like evil, I think about suffering, I think about wickedness, I think about persecution, if I think about false believers, anybody here ever had an experience with a friend of yours or a family member or somebody that turned out not to be a believer? Okay. That's hard, isn't it? My typical reaction to these kinds of things is not usually a reaction that is marked by joy. Okay. It's, my typical reaction is not usually a reaction that is filled with hope. I, it's just not. I'm usually like, oh, the whole world's crumbling. I'm done. I'll go hide on the face the side of a mountain, you know, like, like Elijah, you know, when everything went wrong. 
I think my typical immediate reaction is not usually a steadfast, firm faith. I might appear that way sometimes. Um, All too often when I witness the horrors of this world that we live in, even the horrors that happen within the walls of the church, and I, I rail on this all the time, like if you're hoping there were like perfect people in here, you probably ought to go somewhere else because you ain't perfect, you know? And none of the rest of us are either. So like if you're worried about hypocrites, you're worried about people that sin, yeah, well, we all do and we all are, right? The horrors that happen inside the church family sometimes can probably be some of the worst for me, right? Um, usually I'll feel anger instead of joy. Uh, oftentimes I'll feel despair instead of hope. I'll feel anxiety instead of uh, faith. So I want to go back to that question I asked you a little bit ago. I'm going to ask it a couple different ways. But what is it that you've allowed to steal your joy? What have you allowed to diminish your hope? What has been happening in your life that has caused you to doubt the power of the gospel? I want to ask those three questions one more time. What is it that you've allowed to steal your joy? What have you allowed to diminish your hope? What has been happening in your life that has caused you to doubt the power of the gospel? As you think about that, all I want to do is just simply encourage you. I think from the point of the text, if you and I could catch a simple, greater vision for how the gospel advanced despite the evil men who attempted to stop it, despite the suffering that the church experienced, despite the scattering of believers from the rest of their beloved church family, imagine how scary and lonely that would have been. Despite the many fake brothers and sisters, sprouted up in their midst. You and I could catch a greater vision of how nothing, absolutely nothing, could, could stop God's redemptive plan of a worldwide spread of the gospel. I think, I think then and only then, would we maybe be able to hold on to walking in greater joy, walking in deeper hope, walking in more steadfast faith. You think about it, the core of the gospel stands our crucified, risen, and returning Savior, Right? That's what we say we believe. It's not that we say we believe coming to church and reading the Bible so we can get some basic instructions before leaving earth. Like one of the dumbest things I've ever heard, personally. If you like it, you like it, it's okay. You don't have to be enemies. That's what being a Christian is about. At the core of what being a Christian is about is the fact that we have a crucified, risen, and returning Savior standing at the center. It's the cross. The cross killed Jesus, right? But it only killed Jesus so that you and I could die to our sin at the foot of that bloody cross. Think about after Jesus died, his lifeless body was laid in a cold, borrowed tomb for three days. And the only... You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.